This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. How can we scale up is the challenge. How can we go from one school being a great school to ensuring that more schools are great? And, and to me, our challenge is evidence. This week, my guest is Dr. Paula Cadero, who I know as Aunt Paula. She's the Dan Meyer Distinguished Professor of Global Leadership and Education at the University of San Diego's Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies. She's an education researcher who is constantly learning from others and the person who introduced me to the term entrepreneur in this episode. She's worked all over the world and as the VP of Education for Edify, she has many experiences to share with us and stresses the importance of quality education, not just access to education. Plus, she's one of the reasons I've been interested in peace studies since I was a teenager. Here's our conversation. Aunt Paula, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you and to, you know, introduce you to my listeners as well. Well, Mungi, it's it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. So I'm, I'm going to start with the question that I ask all my guests, and it's about how our resumes are not an explanation of who we are as a full person. And because of that, I wonder what's missing from your very extensive resume that you think people should know about you. I am a lover of, of nature, of conservation, of the wilderness. And especially in a time of COVID, we need trees and plants and animals and flowers. And it just reminds me of how every person, every individual, and of course, for me, it's all about children, need to be exposed uh, to our beautiful world and environment. So that's mm -hmm. not anywhere on my resume. No, it's not. Not not all the reading that I was doing. Um, so you you know you mentioned children, and you you are a professor. You have been in education for years, and I wonder what is one thing that you want your students to take away from your social entrepreneur course. Yeah. So, so most of my students will probably they're either going to if if they don't start their own social enterprises which is mm -hmm. one of the reasons that they they come to us for a masters in social innovation uh, the rest of them will probably work in nonprofit organizations and i really want them to be intrapreneurs to bring mm -hmm. innovative ideas to NGOs, nonprofits that for too long have depended upon donors as the main way to fund their activities. So they really need to think about what social enterprises could support their activities. I like that entrepreneur. I haven't heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that literature, we usually talk about the entrepreneur, but there's quite a bit of literature that says we're, you know, I, I consider myself at the university to be an entrepreneur, to bring mm -hmm. in all the ideas that I learn about when I visit other universities in the world to, to my university so we can learn from others. Well, speaking of, you know, all the universities that you visited in the world, you, you have worked all over the world. And so I'm wondering where you think you've had the most impact or where has had the most impact on you? Yeah, you know, it, this is such a good question. I think it's Ghana. 
Um, I work in 11 different countries. Um, and in most of them, I'm in for a couple of weeks, I'm out, I go back once a year. But with Ghana, I've been going since 2012, 2000, yeah, I think 2012. And I, I don't know how many times I've been to Ghana, um, many, many times. And so I visited hundreds of schools and mm -hmm. I, I, um, I have colleagues at the University of Cape Coast that I work with that become trainers for the work that we do in the schools in Ghana. And I'm, I'm in love with the, the people of Ghana. Ghana is one place I haven't been, so it's on the list. Please. And, and I, I saw a quote attributed to you that, you know, said education is the ticket to escape poverty. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of expand on that. How do we make sure that in the US, but also the, you know, the wider world that we're offering quality education to everyone. Well, Mungi, you just said the key word, quality education. With the Millennium Development Goals, it was about access to education. But with the Sustainable Development Goals, now it's quality in addition to access. So, so how do governments scale up? And one of the challenges in, in many of the nations that are low and middle income in the world is that they, we don't have enough schools. We don't have enough secondary schools and we don't have enough primary schools in many countries. So governments have so many needs, whether it's transportation or health. So, so education is just another need that they have. So ramping up, getting enough teachers and having enough physical buildings is a real challenge. So what's happened? started really happening uh, exponentially around 20 years ago, individuals in, in these low and middle income nations would say, well, you know, I, I'm offering, and mostly women, by the way, many women and families, but the women would say, you know, I'm, I'm offering preschool to three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and the parents are coming to me and saying, you know, can you add on first grade? Can you add on a primary school? So what was originally in their home has turned, they've added on to their home and expanded. And then over time, buy property and build a building. And I've met hundreds of women in particular, but also men who have started schools. So if you look at many of these nations, let's take Uganda, for example, in the city of Kampala alone, they estimate that 85% of the schools are low fee independent schools they're not government schools they might 85. get some subsidies yeah and so usually it's around 20 25 percent but in some countries in liberia it's the same thing so, so those are the schools that i work with they are individual entrepreneurs mostly a, a large number of women who have said i want to make my nation better and education is the way for children to improve their lives. So that's why that uh, on the website that I have, I, I curate a website and we talk about um, alleviating poverty through leadership uh, and, and supporting school leaders. Where would you say then that technology fits in in all of this? Yeah, it plays a huge role. I just had a meeting earlier this week with 
the team that I work with in this NGO. So, so I'm a university professor, but part of my work is also international, right? Before I was doing it full-time, now I'm back doing it part-time. And the team that I met with on Tuesday of this week, it, it's the education team, but half of those team members are educational technology folks. So I'm trying to get the education specialists and the educational technology folks to work together to say, it's not about you know, using WhatsApp on your phone. It's about the teacher and what he or she can do when they use WhatsApp on their phone. Mm -hmm. So technology is key and access to technology. And we know that you know, three quarters of the children in, in youth in, in low and middle income countries don't have internet access at home. And so many, we don't even know, but so many don't have internet access in schools as well. Well, you know, you you mentioned the work you do outside of being a professor. And so I know you're the, the VP of Education for Edify. Mm -hmm. And could you share with us what Edify is? Sure. So it's an international NGO. Uh, it's a faith-based NGO working in 11 countries. And so... Uh, in those 11 countries, all of the staff are local, and we provide micro loans to non-state schools. So our partners are these schools led by these entrepreneurs. Sometimes they're affiliated with a, a local church, but most often the schools are independent. And so we, we provide the loan for them, and maybe it's $5,000 or $10,000 or a little bit more uh, to build a new classroom, to buy a van, to transport children, whatever. So that's one, one piece of what we do. But we know from the literature on micro lending in any field that you have to have training that goes with it. And that's where mm -hmm. I come in. So, so my colleagues and I are developing materials, we're finding partners who have already developed materials, whether they're international or local partners, and providing trainings first for the school leaders because they are the decision makers in the school. How are the resources going to be used? But we also provide workshops for teachers as well. You know, I'm I'm thinking of what you said about in Uganda how 85% of the schools were sort of the private, mm -hmm. and I'm. I'm thinking this work is clearly very inspiring and and brings out a lot of hope. But I imagine there are moments that you either are working with a partner or you can get to a place, whether it's Ghana, Liberia, and you may see conditions where it, it just breaks your heart. And so I'm wondering in those moments, you know, what keeps you going? Burkina Faso. Uh, former French colony, um, mm -hmm. a country that struggles, uh, lots of um, lots of terrorism issues there, immense poverty. One of uh, when we first started working there, one of the highest illiteracy rates in the world, and it's still very high. So when I visit schools outside Ouagadougou, in in particular the rural schools, it, it's so painful not to see any running water, you know, basically, you know, the, the building is not well constructed. The teachers don't have the qualifications they need. You know, there'll be too many children in a classroom, but I've seen the progress. People are so hungry and these school leaders, they're entrepreneurial. You know, some of them, I, I'm thinking of this particular pastor. Mm -hmm. He, 
he doesn't even speak French. I mean, I, my French is not great, but but his French is not great either. So his native language is Moray. So so he was doing. He was in our training, being offered in French. My colleagues, the trainers, all speak French, um, and he's there look, trying his best to learn. Well, I watched this man over the course of a year take all three of our training modules implement that and then he invited me back to his school he had set up a garden the children you want to talk about a social entrepreneur with the garden they were selling the local the vegetables locally and using that money for scholarships for children whose parents couldn't afford to pay anything he had worked with a partner and was able to improve their the the restrooms the, the washrooms for the girls and for the boys he painted mm. the building that's what keeps me going is the 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 genuine passion of people to improve their nations yeah and so then i'm wondering how covid-19 has sort of affected all of this work yeah so we were wondering the same thing so uh last march um the director of ed tech uh, technology and myself andy and i we said, let's find out what's happening in all of our schools because you know our, our staff can one-on-one -on -one tell us, but they don't even know to a certain degree. So we did a research study. It just got published actually. And, and we had a team of 22 uh, of our staff uh, call. So they telephoned the, the owners of the schools or the principals, the head teachers of the schools, asked them a series of questions such as, you know, your school is closed, but are you offering an education? Mm -hmm. And if they said yes, then they we asked, what are you doing? And they were using, I mean, some countries, they were, the government was offering radio or television and they were trying to use paper to support that. So, so they were having parents, families uh, come to the school, pick up materials and take them home, bring them back. Uh, other schools, we had a, a, a school in India that was, um, uh, they would send the teacher out to the village outside and sit with four or five children for an hour and then go to another village and sit with four or five children for an hour. I mean, there were amazingly creative things being done using WhatsApp uh, and using paper and radio and television in particular. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that innovative, because I'd just be like, um, let's call it a day. I, right. I don't know. <laughs> and you know, there were a few people, there were some schools that did that. And those are the ones we're doing a follow up study now. Um, but those are the ones I, I wonder, are they going to reopen um, as schools are reopening? And then uh, have they how many children have they lost versus those schools that did their best weekly to call families to check in with them, even if just to ask how they were doing. And so I kind of want to just flip to the US briefly. Mm -hmm. you know what would you say are the greatest challenges facing educators and students in the u.s and not necessarily having to do with COVID 19 just in general yeah well in general i actually think it's quite similar there are far more similarities you know we're where we're what the world bank calls a high performing nation right a high income excuse me a high income nation and most of western europe and japan and are are um you know their systems are high performing now what does that mean when my son is a teacher locally 
in a low income school district. And during this entire pandemic, he wasn't able to go online and work with his students until the district finally helped families with access to the internet. So, so within our own nation, when we look at the gross inequities that exist, in particular in rural areas, I mean, there are places in, in our tribal nations where the, the people are living in remote areas with no access to the internet. Um, so, so what does it mean? It's all about access. And, and I, I'm not saying that, that technology is the answer, but if right. I can't even go online as a kid and, and learn anything or explore, uh, what an incredible disadvantage. So it's, it's a challenge in almost all nations, but ours in particular of, of the high income nations. I also like, you know, the, the flip of that is I just, I know how difficult it was for me to learn certain subjects that I was not that I didn't perform well at. And then to imagine, you know, kids whose attention spans are maybe a lot shorter than ours having to be online every day learning this is just Yes. I yeah. mean, I'm I did a... I did not do well at uh courses that were online. So I just I really feel for them and their parents. Um, yeah, there's an amazing learning loss taking place. And, and you know, it, it, what's it? Yeah, I, I, I struggle so much. I was watching something on Syria last night and, and I was looking at the devastation in, in a nation like Syria. And uh, we have generations of children who are lost uh, because of war and conflict. And, and now we have generations that won't be returning to school because they've been lost for this year and the mental health issues um and fewer proportionately in our nation we'll try to get kids back into school and we'll do our best but in many middle and low income nations those children are lost they won't be returning to school and what does that mean for not only that country what does that mean for our planet the wasted potential of youth yeah what are we losing out on and that entrepreneur that could have created yeah. something great. Well, then what would you say are the greatest opportunities around education in the US? Um, I, there's a part of me, uh, you know, I'm agnostic about schools. I, I don't care if a school is a charter school, which is a public school, but right. a, a regular public or a charter. I don't care if it's a for-profit or a not-for-profit school. I, I just want quality schools. The, the challenge is when we look at different uh, school districts, New Orleans, for example, which basically is, is all charter schools since Hurricane Katrina, um, or if, if we look at um, uh, you know, other states that don't even allow charter schools, you know, how, how can we scale up is the challenge. How can we go from one school being a great school to ensuring that more schools are great? And, and to me, our challenge is evidence. If, if I'm a classroom teacher today, where can I go easily digest and get digestible information that certain practices or programs that I use have been shown by the evidence to work? That's what the principal needs to help me with. But 
where do I go for that? So we have something called the Institute for Education Sciences in, in Washington, D.C., and there is evidence there. It's the clearinghouse, but it, but it's not detailed. It's not like, go, you know, doctors have all kinds of resources where they can go for evidence mm -hmm. about what's working with COVID, what's not working with this, what's, what, what's good about, you know, what can you do to lessen blood pressure and, and et cetera. That's, we don't have the, the sufficient evidence in education. That's the next frontier so that our teachers can use evidence-based practices. Hmm. Well, so then that also sounds like something that maybe has to do a bit with like the leadership around, you know, that next frontier. And I, I wonder what, what does leadership mean to you? What is important about it to you? Yeah, well, you know, there's leadership. I, I, for years, um, 17 years, I was a, a dean and a faculty member in a department of leadership studies. And that was a generic department of leadership. So it was leadership in any sector. So, so there's the generic pieces of leadership uh, with, with things like um, trust. If you don't have trust uh, amongst a team, it, it, then you, you're not going to accomplish great things. Mm -hmm. So. And, and leadership is influencing others, right? Galvanizing people to go in the same direction, to, to, to walk together, facing forward on the bus, right? Within education, of course, that, that has to be a given. That trust has to be there. We have certain parts of our system that don't allow the people in the positions of leadership um, to do their work uh, in ways that they need to. If a principal cannot select the teachers for his or her building, what does that mean? If you can't select the members of your team, if you're given them by the HR office with very little say in it. So there are certain mm -hmm. structures that, that have to change. And, and that's why, you know, there's so much, uh, charter schools came along so we could learn from them. So they could be catalytic and provide examples of what could be done. The jury is still out on on what we've learned from them. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, having having read your bio, you've been honored by many organizations. And so I'm wondering if that's if there's one of those honors that has, you know, meant the most to you or maybe surprised you. Well, it, it, it's not really. I, I'm so I feel great that you get awards for things. And, and when I got one for diversity recently for the city of San, for San Diego, it was amazing to me. But in actuality, for 12 years, I had the honor of sitting on the James Irvine Foundation board with an amazingly talented staff at that foundation and incredible board members that I learned from. And during that time, I had the opportunity to work with my colleagues and award over a billion dollars to organizations in California. That was humbling. And that to me was for my career. It was, I, I want to be on that board again. I wish I could. You, you can only serve 12 years, you know? Um, <laughs> and now I'm a, I go to the alumni meetings. Um, it was an amazing honor because it makes you step back and say, what's going to make a difference? Whether it's in, we, we looked at living wage work, we looked at education issues, we looked in the arts. Um, what makes a difference? 
and what 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 does the evidence say well okay so then on that i is there an organization that you all gave money to that you you know felt very passionately about or even one that you gave money to and you were surprised by the impact that it had made? Well, you know, yeah, there, there's an organization, it's called Connect Ed, and it, it, is the, it supports secondary schools that are focused, that have pathways um, in the industry sectors that, that California needs. So maybe it's in the health sciences or, um, you know, maybe it's in digital media and things. So, so they're themed schools and we've supported it and it's grown. You know, we provided a lot of support in the beginning and then we don't anymore. And over time it's flourished, uh, throughout our state and it's also impacted other states. It, it, it serves nationally as well. Our secondary schools, you know, I used to be a high school principal in Spain and, you know, our, our high schools are not, they were serving a certain population that was going to go to college. And we didn't, we did a pretty good job of that, but we've not done the, in comprehensive high schools in America, we've not done an overwhelmingly great job of supporting kids who wanted to have other careers. So now when you have these themed high schools and, and just picking the health sciences, you know, not only would kids get their academics, this is the new vocational education model, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's much, um, it, it's much more integrated and, and academic with the academics. And these are kids who are going into, you know, local hospitals or medical centers during their high school years, learning with and from these professionals and seeing, hey, is this something I want to study at a community college or a four year school later? or maybe I wanna graduate and go into the military and be in the health area. So it's a time for them to explore, or maybe they find out they don't wanna be in the health area, which is good as well. Yeah, I was, I was gonna you know, ask about if there was sort of an, a country or a few other countries that you'd worked in where you had seen things that could serve as a model for the education system in the US. And maybe that is it, is that we, you know, the way that we focus on getting to the next sort of education frontier instead of wondering like, do you need to go do that masters? And this is coming from someone who, you know, you come from a very educationally, I guess, directional family. My partner did nine months of university and then left. And so when I heard that, I was like horrified, like, oh my God, you didn't finish school, but like you have to finish school. And it's like, no, it just, it just wasn't the place for him. And he's you know he was not getting the education that he needed or or was gonna gain anything from and so how do we yeah how do we focus on those individual students yeah uh, learning should be lifelong if we mm -hmm. ingrain that in children when they're young okay then then after secondary school as long as everybody graduates from high school after that you know let them you know my nephew is a welder um you know, my father was a carpenter. I, I come from a family of, of what's called blue collar people. So I have always valued my, my nephew went to a vocational uh, education school. You know, he financially does really well as a welder. You know, you can have a good life. And, and, mm -hmm. and we need, we desperately need, need welders and plumbers and, and all of these other jobs that, that, um, 
that a lot of immigrants are actually coming in uh, and appreciating. And, and you know, the, so, so we need to reconnect and learn from countries like Germany or even Rwanda, where, where technical vocational education is, is really strong as well. And, and to value these professions. These are important professions, just as a teacher or a professor is an important profession. Yeah, the, the sort of values that we place on professions early on. Right. Needs to sort of be. Well, I mean, even thinking of, you know, essential workers during COVID and, and my mom has said, you know, yes, of course we call them essential workers, but then we don't treat them as essential humans. And we don't show them that we are actually very thankful for the work that they're doing and putting their lives on the line. Yeah, you know, when the people of Finland were asked, you know, what profession they wanted their children to go into, teaching came out as either the first or the second for most people. That, that would never happen in the United States. So, so we don't value certain professions. You know, look at, look at good, look at when, when you go into a restaurant and you have an excellent weight person, okay? That's a skill, that, that's a profession that in Europe, people, I mean, I go to restaurants in places like Paris and that, that weight person was there for 20 years. It, and they make a good living there. Because yeah, they're paid value. a living wage. You got it. That's right. A living wage. Not not depending upon tips. Right. Oh, well, I sort of want to shift a little bit and ask you, who are the women who have inspired you? Yeah. So, you know, there are so many, but there's different levels of women. So, so at, at one level, it's, it's the international women, you know, Ellen uh, Sir, Johnson Sirleaf, the former uh, president of Liberia, or Mary Robinson, the former prime minister of um, Ireland, or Grasa Machel. She, her, her, her first husband had been the um, prime minister, president, I always get mixed up, of Mozambique. President. Yeah. yeah, president. And then her second husband, well, of course, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> That Grasa Marcel was amazing. And today, look at somebody like Jacintha, uh, uh, what's her last name? Alder, Alden? Ardern. Um, Ardern, thank you. Ardern. I mean, those are remarkable women. So whenever I see anything about them, I read it. I watch, you know, videos about them. So you have that level of a role model out there. And then at, at, at the next level, you know, we have in our school, I work in the Croc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. And in the Croc School, we have women peacemakers, had this program for many years. These are women around the world, the U.S. included, um, who are in that mid-level, mid-tier, trying to bring peace and justice to their communities in the trenches, remarkable women. Uh, we're going to be having them on Zoom next month, and I can't wait to see them. <laughs> and then, of course, we all have people around us. Uh, I've worked for a couple of remarkable women in my career that, that showed me that I could do. They believed in me. They just supported me. And, and they, it wasn't qualified. You know, they, they were just um, so positive. It's sort of like, you know, Mungi, I love your book. And there's a, it's just a gem of a book. And there's one piece here. It's on page 93, actually. And it's where you talk about how you got from your family 
the idea of believing in the inherent goodness of people. Mm-hmm. That to me is, it's absolutely key. I have had women who have believed in my goodness when I didn't believe in my goodness. I believe in your goodness. Oh, thank you, Mungi. And, and me and yours. <laughs> And, you know, we've obviously just celebrated International Women's Day. You know, what does what does celebrating International Women's Day mean to you? Yeah, it actually means a lot. So I three years ago on March 8th, uh, 2018, I created a website, globaledleadership.org, and I curated, I do a few blogs per year, but I started it on March 8th because I had just come back from Liberia and Burkina Faso and Kenya, and I had visited three schools for girls. And I was so excited because there are very few schools uh, on the African continent in general that are only targeting girls. And the women who founded those schools, uh, mostly women, uh, they they, they said to me, we started these schools because girls are not graduating from high school. So this is Mm -hmm. our way of giving back. So I thought, let me honor, uh, I mean, the work I do is is in education leadership. So let me honor the the work that we're gonna start by reaching out to school leaders, principals in primarily marginalized communities in the world with a blog that focuses on the schools I visited and what I learned from those schools. Well, happy anniversary to you and to to the the site. Thank you. So we celebrated our third birthday. Monday, I sent out a blog and I featured all of the blogs that have been written in the last three years about women's education, about girls' education, or about the lives of some remarkable women in in education leadership. Okay, well, I'll have to go check that out. Um, what, What is some advice that you think is important to share with my listeners? Just maybe one piece of advice. Um, You know, I I think it was Larry King who said that every day he got up and he, instead of, you know, he he listened and and he never learned anything from talking. He learned by listening. And when I heard that 20, 30 years ago, I thought I've got to improve my listening skills. So I've been working on it for years now um, to be a better listener. I think we can all do that. So that that is some good advice. So then what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? That that we're not learning from history around conflict. Um, You know, one of the things I've learned, and I, I didn't really know a lot about this, and I'm only beginning to, but because I'm housed in a school of peace studies, my colleagues look at the evidence as to what works in conflicts what kind of peace initiatives. And so that's the work that they're trying to practice with the women peacemakers and with other groups. So what can we learn around the conflicts that exist, whether they're conflicts over land or water, whatever they are, ethnic conflicts, what can we learn from Rwanda uh, after the, you know, the genocide of 1994? There are amazing learnings from that. And how can we practice? And if we don't do it, then we're going to be having additional huge challenges and more and more things like genocide. Mm-hmm. What is your greatest hope for humanity? That we will learn 
that we will look at. I, I'm, I'm a researcher. I'm a professor. I love evidence. And, and you know, and, and I, again, I listen to these women peacemakers and, and there are practices that they engage in because they've learned over the years themselves through their own practice and from their colleagues. Absolutely. Well, Aunt Paula, thank you very much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, Mungi. I, I love hearing you, seeing you, and I love the name of this podcast. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. So good luck and sending my love. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.